Welcome to The Private Project. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, I speak with Lauren Fly, a paintings conservator and collections manager based in New York City. She graduated magna cum laude as a double major in art history and historic preservation, with a specialty in architectural conservation, as a member of Pi Beta Kappa from Mary Washington College. She then entered into the graduate program at New York University's Institute of Fine Arts, where she continued to study art history and trained in the Crest Program in Paintings Conservation at the IFA's Conservation Center. She gained additional experience during her training at various museums and private studios, including the National Galleries of Scotland and Rustin Levinson in New York City. In 2005, she took up a one-year postgraduate internship at the Hamilton Kurt Institute, where she received a postgraduate certification from the University of Cambridge. She continued at the Hamilton Kurt Institute under a Crest Fellowship focused on French masterworks from the Fitzwilliam Museum. Following the completion of her time at the Hamilton Kerr, Lauren worked privately in London and Cambridge, and in 2008, moved to the Netherlands to take up a position first as a paintings conservator for the Institut Colletsi Nederland, and then at a private studio in the Netherlands. In her training and subsequent experience, she has worked on a great variety of paintings, from the sarcophagus of Ramses II, to a 14th century Greek icon, to a 19th century decorative scheme in a Nantucket house, to large contemporary pieces in mixed media. Her specialties extend beyond treatment to include a longtime passion for collections management, best practice guidance, and raising public awareness and understanding of conservation. In 2011, she founded the Fly Arts Initiative, a fine art conservation and collections management practice based in New York, New York. With more than 15 years of international experience in paintings conservation and collections care, Lauren works with museums, private collectors, galleries, and other stewards of cultural heritage to preserve and protect their objects. She is passionate about promoting and demystifying conservation for the wider public, and loves talking about little things that can make a big difference. In this episode, we discuss Lauren's education, her time as a freelancer and private practitioner in England and Amsterdam, her transition to the States, working at a Swiss multinational, and starting Fly Arts Initiative. We also cover what a business plan is and how it can be helpful, the importance of collections management, how treatment has dominated conservation visibility, and ways to intentionally connect with people who need conservation services. And now here's my interview with Lauren Fly. To start, thank you so much for joining me, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. Let's start with an introduction. So how did you discover the field of conservation? Sure. So I discovered it fairly early on. Uh, When I was 13, we lived in Rome for a year, and it was the first time I'd ever had an art history class and the first time I'd ever had a chemistry class. And that was just a quirk of the school that I went to that year. And my dad, not in a pressureful way, but just, you know, in that curious way that parents are, was like, you know, what do you think you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, I used to either want to be a marine biologist or an archaeologist, you know, like Indiana Jones, but I'm really liking these two 
classes. Like, I think they're really interesting. So, you know, maybe something with one of those. And that was towards the end of the time they were finishing the Sistine Chapel restoration. So the photos had started to come out and living in Rome, it was like a big deal. It was all over the papers. And so I, you know, I read about it and heard about it. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I think I think that's what I want to do. And then I don't have to choose. It's art history and it's chemistry. And it's like, I get to be up close and handling, you know, I, I like to have some sort of manual craft sort of aspect. And that was that. I really truly just decided that's what I wanted to do and went for it. Like went straight through, chose college based on that, chose, you know, grad school, like everything. And that is how I found out about conservation. So that you found out about conservation before college, correct? Yeah. That's amazing. And so then you went on to earn a double major in art history and historic preservation at Mary Washington College. For those unfamiliar with the program, can you describe your experience there? Sure. Yes. As you pointed out, I did realize it before college, which was pretty useful because it meant I could really tailor all of my classes and interests and everything to that. So for instance, I took organic chemistry when I was still in high school. I took it at the University of Utah my senior year because I knew I was going to need it for conservation. And I knew, you know, I took the higher level chem class for IB. And so that's when I took that. And then Mary Washington was my number one choice for school. We did like a little East Coast tour of colleges because that's primarily what I was interested in before we moved to Utah my senior year of high school. And the thing that really stood out about Mary Washington to me was at that time, you know, there were very few undergraduate programs in historic preservation or anything like that. And Mary Washington was really the only one. And so although you couldn't do conservation at that level, you could do historic preservation. And so I chose the architectural conservation specialty. And I knew from the museum studies class and other things that I would get a lot of great experience and information that would inform conservation, even if it wasn't necessarily a conservation class in and of itself. And it turned out to be hugely advantageous just because the way, you know, thinking through objects, how to write reports, documentation, all of those things really, you know, were instilled in me pretty early. And even the ideas of conservation ethics and what we preserve and why, you know, thinking through all those issues started pretty early. And they also had an excellent art history degree. Uh, and so it was a pretty natural double major for me. And that was that. That sounds like an incredible undergrad experience. I'm curious, did you also have like hands-on internships built into that undergraduate degree? Or did that, is that something that came after you graduated? I did have an internship at Kenmore, which is the local historic house museum. I got a fellowship to do an internship there over the summer and then one semester. So that was great early experience with how museums work, how objects are handled in a variety of different contexts. And since I was doing architectural conservation, the building as environment for objects, which is obviously hugely important in conservation also. So I did have some hands-on experience with that. And, you know, we did field work for measuring out buildings and drafts. I did a program on historic preservation in Scotland that was really useful, but I had no pre-program conservation experience in terms of like straight conservation that wasn't just handling objects in a museum and things like that. Gotcha. Where did you go from there? I, well, you'll notice a through line since I know I wanted to do conservation. I had been looking at Queens, Buffalo, Winterthur, and NYU, and I had decided NYU was the one for me. It was the only one I applied to. The draw of living in a bigger city and having that kind of access to museums and the rest of the art world, I thought would be really beneficial. I liked the way that NYU has their program set up with 
the doubles masters in art history so that you are engaging with these other ideas as well. It just sort of ticked a lot of boxes and what I was looking for. And so I applied and I was incredibly lucky and got in on my first try. And so then I moved to New York straight from college. That was that. Amazing. And can you describe your graduate school experience in more detail? Sure. It was interesting because I think uh, sometimes I think back like, should I have taken some time off between college and grad school? Because mm -hmm. I was kind of in school mode where, you know, you're like, I'm going to pass this test. I'm going to study this. I'm going to study that. But, you know, you didn't, especially with hindsight, like you don't, you didn't have the framework necessarily to hang the information you were learning off of. So I kind of do wish I'd had maybe a few years in a museum or something so that I could better understand and appreciate all the different kinds of information that was coming at you. On the other hand, I had a great time and I learned a a lot of great things from some amazing professors. And so can't change the past, but that was, it was interesting to have gone straight through from college. Yeah. That's very unique. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad I got in when I did. Cause I think I also could have, I really liked to store preservation and I think I could have been very, very happy working within preservation. So I knew that if I'd taken much time off, I think I probably would have gotten sidetracked uh, and that would have been okay, but I really wanted to do conservation. So, and I came in knowing that I wanted to do paintings conservation. And did you have internships structured in that graduate experience? Mm -hmm. So at NYU at that time, and I think, you know, still today, you do some of your treatment classes at the local museums. So we were learning science from Chris McGlinchey and going to look at their instrumentation and Tony France taught us about x-rays. So we walked over to the Met and looked there and NYU had, um, you know, our own x-rays and for treatment, um, the advanced paintings treatment class, in addition to Diane Dwyer Modicini teaching us at the IF. I did a class at the Met with Dorothy Mann, where I learned to strip line, learned how to pay attention to what side the Beba release film is on. And then over the summer, I worked at Rusty Levinson's studio with Harriet Ergang and Jean Dommermuth. And that was fantastic. That was my first real private practice experience. And so that was pretty, pretty informative and instrumental as well. When you were working at Rusty's company, were you thinking that maybe private practice was for you? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? I didn't not like working in museums, but I really liked working in private practice. I, I liked the idea that you get to see quite a wide range of things. It's on-site, it's off-site, that you kind of, you never know what's coming in the door. Frequently, the things you get can be pretty beat up. And so you're solving very novel problems. And so I did, I did like that side of of private practice. I think like many private practice conservators, I was like, oh, if I could just do two or three days at an institution and then two or three days in private practice, that would be perfect because it kind of scratches all the all the itches. Yeah. And then did we also talk about your internship in Scotland? Was that part of NYU as well? Oh, that was after NYU, between mm -hmm. NYU and the Hamilton Carr. Uh, so the Hamilton Carr was my fourth year internship at the at NYU because you do three years at the Duke House and at the Conservation Center. And then you go off for your fourth year internship. I knew I was going to the Hamilton Carr and the National Museum of Scotland kindly took me for a summer internship on sort of en route to England. And that was great. Worked with Leslie Stevenson, who's amazing. They have a very, very active loans program. And that was the first time I got a lot of experience with incoming and outgoing loans, which was really interesting and exciting 
to work on. And that's something that you obviously don't, really don't get unless you're at an institution and, and you don't frequently get a ton of experience with while you're training just because of the nature of the programs. Absolutely. And can you talk a little bit more about your experience at the Hamilton Kerr? Yes. So much like Mary Washington in NYU, the Hamilton Kerr was the only place I wanted to do my internship and I'm extremely lucky that they took me. It really appealed to me. We had lived abroad when I was growing up and I really liked it. One of the other reasons I wanted to get into conservation was because I was like, well, Europe has a lot of old art. I think that could that would probably mean that I could move back here. And so the idea of going abroad really appealed. I spoke French, but not at to a level where I would feel comfortable working as a like graduate intern in it. So then it was like, okay, what are the English speaking programs? And I really liked the Hamilton Carr because they're a tripartite sort of institution. So they are, of course, the paintings conservation department of the Fitzwilliam Museum at the University of Cambridge. They're also a training program in their own right, and they're exclusively paintings. So they take two painting students every other year and then interns and fellows regularly throughout. And they also work as a like a private center. And so they do work for private clients, other national cultural institutions and things like that. I liked the idea of still being in an environment that focused and encouraged training and learning. I liked being associated with a museum so that we could, I could still get experience with you know, loans and survey, like all that sort of thing and see how museums work. And then also continue to build up experience and private practice for this is the different kind of clients. This is how you estimate. This is how, you know, all of those sorts of things. So it just worked out perfectly. And I was only supposed to be there for 10 months and I loved it. And I stayed for four years and would have stayed for longer if I could have made the visas work. That's so interesting. I didn't realize that they have this sort of private practice mm-hmm. aspect to them. That's really interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't, it's not the largest part of their work, but it definitely, I actually, I don't know what the balance of work is these days. I'd have to ask them, but it was, it's, it's a not insignificant, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know where the balance is between not the largest and not insignificant, but yeah, they do private work, which is really interesting. It kind of sounds like the closest thing to like the best of both worlds between institution and private that I've heard. That's really awesome. It was great. So you said you stayed there for four years and then had trouble with visas and then weren't able to stay. So I was in England for four years and I was again, very lucky because when you're at the Hamilton Cars and intern, you have the option to join at one of the Cambridge colleges. And I took that option because I was like, oh, what a great experience. Uh, And I was placed at Trinity, which is one, one of the greats at Cambridge. And so it was just a great year, but it also meant that because of that affiliation, I could get like a student visa, which was helpful. Like with many things for conservation, it kind of like doesn't fit neatly in, into any one category. And they weren't entirely sure I qualified, but they weren't sure I didn't qualify. And they're like, well, it's one person, like it's fine. And because you bring your own money with you when you go on your internship, or you at least did then, it was kind of like, well, okay, fine. Just like let her come in. And so I was able to get through on student visas for two years while I maintained the Hamilton car connection. And then at that time they had a postgraduate training visa that was good. So it was like, if you'd been associated with a graduate program and you stayed and you were working like blah, blah, blah. So I qualified. And then the time came for me to transition from that. And the UK was really revamping and beginning to crack down quite seriously on their visa program. And this was end of 2007, early 2008. And so 
there was a visa there. Like if you have visa A and you're transferring to visa B, you'll be eligible for this new scheme we put in place and you just have to do the paperwork. And I was like, okay, well, that's a me. So when can I do this? And they they didn't have a timeline and I kept calling. I even went down to Croydon, which was the waste of time they said it would be. And finally someone on the phone, I was like, I can either stay, which according to everyone I should be able to, but like as soon as this visa is available, I can apply for it get it. And I can either stay and continue to work, or I have to find a job in a different country. And the woman on the phone said, yes, I can appreciate that must be difficult. And I was like, okay, this is, I got it. This is not going to be reliable. (laughs) So it still is very difficult as someone who's not an EU citizen working in the arts, because especially in the UK, the salaries do not qualify you for most of the visas, even though education wise, we qualify as highly skilled, the salaries do not. And so that's when one of my dear friends, she was from the Hamilton car and she was doing her internship at the Franz Halls Museum, suggested that I might look at the Netherlands because they had a lot of jobs. It was a great place to live. And so I did. Before we transition to talking about your work at the Netherlands, I want to go back a little bit. So I see that you did a little bit of freelance work still in England. Can you talk a little bit about that types of projects? And because I believe this is the first time that you've worked in the private practice, even Mm -hmm. as a freelancer, how did you learn how to structure your workflow? Yeah. So I did private practice for almost two years, like freelancing and things in England before I went to the Netherlands. So I was very lucky that Sally Woodcock was in Cambridge and that I knew her from the HKIM because it's a small world. And she has been the most fantastic mentor. And she was so kind and generous in hiring me for projects, but then also letting me project manage some of them and like sharing how she started, how she ran things, how she estimated. And so I had asked her, she had a studio in her back garden and I'd asked her about, you know, like subletting some of it, you know, like paying by the day or by the hour, if I wanted to bring my own treatments in. And she said, yes. And then we kind of bartered, like I would do some work for her and she would give me studio time. It was just truly, I cannot credit her enough with helping with that transition. And sort of, I really think setting me up for private practice as an incredible model for smart ways to do things. And then I just freelanced at at a couple of other projects, eventually had some clients of my own, and that's when the visas ran out. But really, Sally Woodcock, thank you. Amazing. Are there any tips or techniques that you learned from her that you still integrate in your practice today? Hmm. Yes, I would say. She was always very good at client communication. So being prompt and just working smart, like not buying a bunch of equipment if you didn't actually need it, making things very efficient in terms of space. Like she had a studio in her back garden and it was small, but still the range of things, treatments we were able to do was huge because she was so smart about how she had it organized and how she managed projects. I do frequently think about how she ran things. Sounds like a great mentor. So I'd like to go back now to your transition to the Netherlands. So your visa is running out in England. How do you make the transition to working in the Netherlands? Um, I started looking for jobs. I had never even been there at that point. And so I just started looking, um, you know, at the ICOM postings at ICON, BAPCR, because um, I could have stayed in England if I'd gotten a contract job, but employers quite understandably didn't want to do the paperwork and pay the money when they could just hire an EU person. And so I started looking for jobs. And a couple months later, the Institute Collectie Nederland, the ICN, as it was known then, advertised 
for two conservators and I applied and I went for an interview and I got it along with my friend Kristen, which was great because we had each other to help with that transition because she was also coming from Cambridge as well. And that was that. So it was, I have to say, a pretty easy transition. I mean, I'm sure lost in the midst of time are other jobs I applied for and things like that. And I, I really didn't want to leave England, but this seemed like a great opportunity and a great place. And so off I went. Amazing. And so you stayed there for two years. Is that correct? Yes. I think almost two years I was at the Sioux Collection in maybe a year and a half. So we were hired specifically for a project called the Compensatie Regeling, which was a comprehensive survey of all the Dutch government's holdings in embassies, offices, storage, you know, everywhere. And so we were a part of that project. And then that project was winding down and I wanted to go into private practice. And so, yeah, so then I did. And I worked, then I worked privately in the Netherlands. Can you describe this a little bit more about your experience of working privately in the Netherlands? Yeah. So kind of like England, the, I think the density of history and like cultural holdings in both, you know, disproportionate to the size of the country in both England and the Netherlands means that conservation had been established as professions for quite a while. And there was like there were some very well-known, like thriving private studios and a lot of work going on. And it's a very small community. And also you can get like almost everywhere within two or three hours. So, and tons of people commuted. And so uh, it was easy to, you know, talk to other conservators and sort of see what other work was going around um, and find people who needed freelance help. So much like England, it kind of started freelancing for other people and then went on a contract, eventually decided, I think I'd seen enough that I could try doing it on my own at that point. And so I started my own studio while I was still in the Netherlands. I think I started end of 2010, early 2011, something like that. And I started my own studio. Can you talk a little bit more about the logistics of starting your own studio in a foreign country? That's so fascinating. Yeah. There's something called the Dutch American Friendship Treaty that encourages and facilitates Americans to to be able to start their own businesses, open their own businesses in the Netherlands and vice versa. And so I was eligible for that. It was a low lift in terms of what needed to be done. I know that I needed 5,000 euros in the bank set aside for like the business, a business plan that had been reviewed and approved by a lawyer. Why And why they wanted a lawyer and not an accountant, I'm not sure. Maybe my accountant had also looked at it. And then I truly think that might be it. I think those were the only two things. It was very easy. And so, you know, I kind of just took a chance and said, well, I think there's enough around that I could do this. And so I started it and then I could freelance for other people through my business in addition to much like England, taking on my own clients. Awesome. For those who aren't aware, can you describe what a business plan is and what it kind of entails? That's a great question. I don't I know I should know all the different parts, but now it's been so long since I wrote it. It's essentially, mm-hmm. and it's it's a useful exercise generally. So in the middle of like, oh, why are they making me do this? I was also like, oh, I'm glad they're making me do this. It's essentially just a, a narrative accounting of the kind of business it is, the services you'll be offering, who your client base is, how you'll be marketing yourself, where you'll be working, how you'll be working, what kind of growth would you like to see happen? Like give projections based on past income. And obviously no one can predict the future, but it was like, based on this market analysis, 
And the market analysis was just me talking to other conservators, seeing what was going on and having worked there for three years at that point, kind of understanding what it would be like to work and how I would price the services and stuff like that. So it was good because it it does give you something to work from. I kind of want that up and see if I even still have it. I'm sure I do. But um, yeah, that was, that's a business plan, at least how I think of it. I think the um, internet will have much more. That's so curious because that's the first time someone's mentioned a business plan and I'm really? thinking, oh. Yeah, but I maybe I didn't ask the question that way. Interesting, but I would think people would. That's really interesting, actually. I feel like that would be something that, like you said, would be useful in the process of making it. Yeah. Kind of like make your business plan explicit in a way you maybe might not have done. But I could also see challenges of like trying to integrate a business plan specifically for conservation. I'm surprised because you do need business plans for Mm. other things. Like I think you need them for like applying for business loans. I mean, I haven't ever applied for a business loan, but I'm, you do need them. Um, And maybe people are writing things that are business plans but they're not technically called business plans. Fly Arts Initiative business document, business plan. Here we go. All from April, 2011. (laughs) It has an executive summary, objectives, mission, keys to success, company summary, which is the company ownership, startup summary, startup funding, services, market analysis summary, market segmentation, target market segment strategy, service business analysis, competitive buying patterns, management summary, which is a personnel plan, competitive edge, which is your marketing strategy, sales strategy, sales forecast, and milestones, and a financial plan that includes pricing, a break-even analysis, and cash flow projections for two years. So it is actually what I said. (laughs) That sounds so useful. I definitely want to have more conversations about this. Maybe I'll ask that specifically ask a question about if you had a business plan when you started. Yeah, I would ask because I mean, truly it's something that I don't know that I would have formerly done if it hadn't been required of me, but I was Mm -hmm. glad that I had to do it because it's things you already know and you're already thinking about it, but the process of thinking through it logically and writing it down, like market analysis summary, the market can be segmented into three different groups, private clients, commercial customers, and institutional collections. And then writing down each of those three segments and looking at how their business works and how it flows and how the kinds of services they need. I even did projected workload distribution between market segments each for the first three years. And again, it's not like if I didn't meet those targets, that was good or, you know, or if the distribution was different, that wasn't necessarily good or bad, but it was interesting to think through what I thought was going to happen. And it helped me kind of focus my efforts. I feel like it's also productive to like have something to aim for rather than like kind of leaving yes. it non-explicit. Yes. I don't know where I got the template for this business plan, but I kind of want to look at it again because man, I did a good job. It includes competition and buying patterns. So I talk about like who the competition would be and why a client would go to them instead of me. And again, it's not like you can always do anything about that, but just to think through it is quite interesting. The entirety of my personnel plan is Ms. Fly will be the Fly Fly Arts Initiative's only employee. (laughs) 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 And include like the marketing strategy 
again, it was really, it was useful to do. And I am now thinking I maybe want to go back and do that again. Like, you know, update it. Is there like a business plan template on in the CIPP library? There is not. So right now in the CIPP library, there is a boilerplate contract template for working in private practice with a separate document that has a couple of clauses that you could add or remove as necessary. So there's one that's like, we had them prepare one and actually in response to directly to member feedback that was Mm -hmm. like, here's the bare bones, like you must have. And then here's some clauses you could either take or leave. There's one that is a receipt of artwork. So if someone drops something off at your studio and then you release it back to them, there's that. And there's a clause about intellectual property. Actually, that's a great point. This would be a good thing to have. Uh, We are trying to build out the available resources for conservators in private practice within the group. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a lot to do, that there's a lot of demand. And so we're trying to, we are trying to get that going. And actually a business plan template would be pretty good. And also I think not be hard. I mean, it's like an exercise for you to do, right? It's not like you're necessarily publishing that anywhere. So I don't think it would be problematic. No, there's also so many resources available online. I will say that I'm sure I just found this online somewhere and adapted it for what our business needed. You know, you have to break down your expenses between fixed and variable. So I had like salary, internet, phone, professional development fund, electronics, depreciation, and then the variable cost for like travel, office supplies, and project materials. There are so many things available online that it can seem overwhelming to look, but it's not hard to find a business development. And this was in 2011 that I looked like I can only imagine now how many more there would be and like information about what is a break-even analysis, you know, that sort of thing. That's a good point. Anything else on the business plan that's interesting that's included? Uh, How very low my hourly rate was at that time. It's really interesting. It's just funny to go back and look at what it was. Again, I think this was just sort of formalizing things I'd already known and had thought about. But now going back and looking at it, I can see the little seeds from whence many other things have grown. We're in this business plan that I just had to do for the Dutch American Friendship Treaty visa. So thanks. Acronym is DAFT, which gave my friends and I no was an endless source of amusement. But um, yeah, tip of the hat to DAFT. Thanks, guys. Amazing. Okay. So I think we were talking about how you were doing a business in, correct me if I'm, is it the Netherlands? We're in the Netherlands still, correct? Yeah. Yeah. We're still in the Netherlands. I start the Fly Arts Initiative. And so you had to have 5,000 euros in the bank. You made your business plan. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you did with that business? Yeah. Oh, I also just want to say there was a funny thing. I noticed on your list of questions, you asked how I came up with the business name and that was also because of this visa. Mm. So in England, I think I was just like, Lauren Fly, Fine Art Conservation and Restoration or something like that. Um, and I definitely wanted the name Fly in it because it is, for better or worse, it is very memorable and people tend to remember it. <laughs> but the lawyer who was helping me with the visa, this particular visa, had said, again, because conservation doesn't really fit into a category, he was like, if they don't really understand it or they don't see how it applies, they might just say no. So you you want to like give them 
as many chances to say yes, you know, as they can, like make it easy for them to understand what's going on. So they were like, do you do anything else that's not conservation? I said, sure. Like I do some editing or I teach, you know, there's a lot of things I want to do. And specifically he said, don't say conservation and restoration because it will make them nervous that you don't have enough other revenue streams, you know, like if the business goes in a different direction. And so I said, okay, so I was trying to think of something that had fly in it and that had art in it. And initiative just seemed to kind of fit the bill. And so that was that. Amazing. And so I have a question about space. Where did you make space for this business in the Netherlands? Sure. So one thing I did, and this I think was also something I got from Sally was Sally had a, you know, a studio at home, but she also worked on site quite a bit. And moving art is like expensive for the client. It's a faff. And so I realized, you know, as much work as I could do on site would be beneficial because then I can avoid overhead. I can avoid having to carry the insurance myself for having things in the studio. And it makes it easier for the client. And if it was an institution, they can also turn it into like a public education and engagement project. And so for a long time, I worked on site as much as possible. And then if I needed space... I did have my apartment in the Netherlands was so nice. And it did have a really big space I could do conservation in for the right kind of treatment. And then I did set up a studio in Amsterdam. Uh, It was difficult to find the right space because the Dutch government is so supportive of the arts, which is fantastic. But a lot of the art studio spaces are controlled by the government. And they said that conservation didn't qualify for those art spaces because I wasn't making anything new. Like, I get it. So it was fine. But it meant that a lot of spaces that would have been great weren't available to me. And so I did finally find something because, you know, you have to have the right balance of security and light and access. And if there's no elevator, are there tight corners, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I did finally find a space and that was great. Uh, And so I set that up. That's amazing. I want to ask you a little bit more about studio specific questions, but before we go there, Mm -hmm. you briefly mentioned insurance. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what kind of insurance do you have? And did you require different coverages for different types of clients? Sure. So at that time, I don't think I did. I didn't have insurance, business insurance when I was in England or the Netherlands. I required the owners to cover the works with their insurance, which now I know that many insurance policies actually exclude coverage while artwork is undergoing treatment. So whether or not they would have been actually covered is the subject of some uh, debate, but luckily I don't have to worry about that because I'm not there anymore. And so now I do have studio insurance. And when I took out, um, it's with Huntington Block, as many conservators are. And when I had them write the policy, I had them include collections management and consulting because that has become a bigger part of my business. So I have studio coverage and I included the other locations field equipment coverage because that I go on site a lot and that actually seems like a bigger opportunity to ruin my laptop or like drop tools. And then uh, I have general liability through Hartford and more than me requiring clients to have certain kinds of insurance is usually the other way around. So because I work in New York City, that's where I'm based. I do work other locations, but that's like my primary base of operations. A lot of buildings in New York require general liability coverage. Specifically, a lot of expensive condos require general liability coverage. And it's just a blanket policy they have for their vendors. So I've had to increase my coverage more for them than I have to cover studio contents. 
which is fine. I just build it into the price of business. And then if it's a particularly delicate project, I might ask for a waiver of subrogation, but I haven't really had to. Otherwise, I just provide COIs as necessary. And again, it's mostly when I work on site at an institutional, like a a bank or a corporate collection or (laughs) a condo. Awesome. That's great information. I'm curious about the studio that you had in in the Netherlands Hmm. still. Did you purchase like tools, equipment, materials to kind of furnish that studio space? Sure. So one thing that I always encourage people who are just starting out in private practice, they're like, oh, there's so much to buy, blah, blah, blah. Like just buy what you need when you need it, really. Like if you look at the bare bones of what you actually need to do most conservation treatments, you can get away with with not that much. I will say, you know, I bought a good, sturdy Mabef easel early on because that is obviously important and having enough table space was important. The first very expensive sort of proper piece of equipment that I bought, even more expensive, obviously, than the easel was the Willard hot iron. And that was because there's a lot of ways to work around getting a Willard or, you know, there's a lot of substitute products, but the price of a well-made quality tool built for purpose that is nice to use and works properly and is reliable very quickly, like pays for itself. Your The treatments end up better. They end up faster. I was like, this is worth spending the money on. And it is, especially for paintings, because that's one of the things you use the most, especially because I do a lot of structural treatments that has been irreplaceable. And then I've tended to just buy big ticket items as needed because otherwise they take up space and money and I'm not using them. And then materials at that time in Amsterdam, it was very easy to get things from the European supplier. So I had a small stash of materials that I would need, but a lot of things last a long time, like the medium for consolidation. I did a project for a church and as the project price, I had I built in the cost of a full set of Gamblin, which I am using to this day. And it's a huge, I got, it's like the complete set and I needed it for that project. It fit within their project budget and it was just like part of the deal. And so I think there's smart ways to kind of build things in and also just be canny. I think there's, you know, some of the Facebook groups have really good tips for where to find things on the secondary market, dupes or like, you know, tools that aren't meant for conservation, but can be really useful that sort of thing. So I sort of built it up. Now the studio holdings have grown to include quite a lot of things. I just want to make sure I have this correct. You started your business in the Netherlands and then did you transition to Richmond, Virginia and then to New York City? Yes. Okay. So when I, because I really liked the Netherlands, I liked Amsterdam, I liked the work, but that year, 2012, at that point I had a roommate, they were leaving. So I needed to replace my roommate. I needed to renew my business visa or like my business paperwork, my personal visa. And like 80% of my friends were expats and they were all leaving Amsterdam. And I was like, I've had a good time here. I don't know if it's my forever place. You know, I've been here for four years. And if I wasn't going to stay there forever, I wasn't sure how much longer I needed to stay. I was like, maybe I should try living in the States again. And you know, your family is getting older, things like that. And so I wasn't sure where to move back to in the States. My father was in the military, so I'm not really from anywhere. My parents have lived in Tampa, Florida since the mid nineties. I lived there intermittently growing up. Florida was not for me. I don't like hot weather. And I hadn't really done a good job of keeping up business 
contacts and networks in New York. So it seemed crazy to just show up in New York without a job. And so I wasn't sure where I wanted to live. I thought about San Francisco, stayed with some friends out there for a few weeks, but I think I'm just a little too East Coast. And my sister was living in Richmond, Virginia, which is near where I went to college. And she was like, you know, I think you'd really like it. She'd visited me when I was in England and Amsterdam. And so she knew the kinds of things that I liked. And it ticked a lot of boxes, like didn't have to have a car I could cycle, had a great art museum, a good art scene, good food and music and like good cultural scene. And so I was like, sure, I'll give that a try. And I was there for two years and I worked freelance, but more and more opportunities just kept coming up in New York. So I thought, okay, I think it's time to go back to New York. Did you have to like end your business or were you able to transfer that? There wasn't a lot of paperwork to transfer really. Like you just have to, it's pretty easy to incorporate an LLC in the US. I'm lucky also my sister's a lawyer, so her firm could handle, you know, I didn't have to like find a lawyer, what to do, blah, blah, blah. Um, And because I didn't have a permanent address when I moved here, I was like trying out living in Richmond. You know, my sister was like, I have a two bedroom, come stay with me, see what you think. If you like it, that's great. If you don't, that's fine too. And, you know, you haven't had to sign a lease or do anything. So I was able to incorporate the business in Florida, which was my last Mm -hmm. permanent address in the U.S. It really wasn't very hard to do. I think I probably, I don't even remember what I had to do to close it in the Mm -hmm. Netherlands. So whatever it was, it was not onerous. I do still have a pension there from when I worked for the ICN. You can't withdraw until you've been gone for eight years. Anyway, so I didn't have to officially close it. I had to officially deregister at the Jameta, which is like the local council, I guess, city council. But in terms of shutting the business down, just closed the bank account and moved and then set up an LLC in the US. It's been more work to set up working in different states in the US, like to then register with New York to do business here than it was in the Netherlands. And some of these bigger pieces of equipment, like the easel, were you able to transfer that with you or did you have to sell and then buy new in the US? I sold a huge amount of stuff. I sold the biggest stuff. I brought the easel with me. I sold the tacking iron because at that point I had a different tacking iron. I had actually, I really liked it. It was made by this Polish company and they just started making it. I bought it through Duffner and Johan, but given the like difference in currents, it wasn't worth trying to adapt it. So I gave that to my friend who says it's still going strong. And in fact, she's just passed it on to another conservator. And then I kept like my palette, the gambling hand tools. I kept my spray gun. But then everything else, anything big, I left all the studio furniture, the flat files, all of that, just because it was too bulky and moving it, it didn't make any sense. If I didn't have a place to put it, it wasn't worth the expense of moving it. So I mostly like gave it to friends who are conservators or stuff like the flat files I put on Craigslist. So how long were you in Virginia before you made the transition to New York? Two years. And at that time, how did you sort of like establish clients? Did you still have connections from your time in college or did you kind of have to start fresh? A little bit of both. I had some connections from my time in college, so that was good. I like taught a couple classes for them, got involved with the Virginia Conservation Association, so met the Virginia conservators that way. And then again, kind of the same as I did in England and then again in Amsterdam, like started doing some freelance work until I had a balance of clients where I could do my own things. And then in Virginia, I had a home studio, like very basic. And then can you describe the transition to New York? Hmm. Yeah. I So I'd lived here obviously before for grad school. So I knew the city, but also knew that the city had probably changed in the 10 years that I'd been gone. And so 
I just moved back with a little nest egg of money and had reached out to my like friends from grad school who were still in the city, other people I knew who were still in the city and just like stopped by and said hi. And really just to give the lay of the land, like how are things now? What's going on? And the same just started again, like picking up freelance projects and then working freelance and like had clients of my own until 2016 when I went to work for SGS. You briefly mentioned working at SGS. Can mm-hmm. you describe that business and your experience there? I absolutely can. SGS is a large Swiss multinational, which is something I think most conservators would never picture themselves working at. I certainly didn't, but they were opening an art services division that had already been operating in Geneva for a couple of years. And they had a technical lab and their art services were not based on treatment. There was no bench treatment. It was entirely focused on documentation and technical analysis. And so I first met with the person who had become my boss, Jan Walter, in New York because they were talking to conservators in private practice about becoming people to who would do the condition reports and things like that, local experts. You know, we were just having a coffee and he was asking about my experience. He's like, we have this job open. He was like, please consider applying for it. I was like, I don't know. I thought a lot about giving up active treatment. Um, and so that was kind of part of it. And then weirdly, I didn't want to be seen to be selling out. I don't know what I was thinking. I asked two of my best friends who are also paintings conservators and have known me kind of the longest. I was like, I don't know. What do you guys think? And they were like, and it seems like a great opportunity. I really think you should do it. And they were like, if the worst thing that happens is you don't like it, you can quit and go back to your studio. I was like, okay, good point. And uh, so I interviewed and they offered me the job. And I have to say, it's probably one of the best business decisions I ever made. (laughs) I found I did not miss active treatment as much as I had been afraid I would. And I made sure in my, when I negotiated my contract with them that I kept my business running so I could do work on the side if I wanted to, obviously not for anyone who was an SGS client, but I could do work on the side if I wanted to. And I never did. <laughs> One, because it was very, very, very busy, but also because I've, I found this part of it very engaging. And I really credit it with also crystallizing something that I kind of had swirling around in my head for a while, which is that I enjoy treatment. But the other thing I really enjoy is collections management and consulting. It is because there's so much art out there and conservation still remains not visible to a lot of people, even people who should know better, um, people with, you know, private collectors with expensive art, you know, the specialists at the auction houses and art advisors who have their own places and do wonderful work, but are not conservators are stepping in on a lot of these issues. And the good art advisors have conservators they work with and things like that. But I just saw this real need for conservation ideas, materials, methodologies and practices. There's a lot of space still to be populated. And this job at SGS made me realize like, I really like that part of it. And it makes me feel like I'm helping more art. Like I'm a perfectly good paintings conservator. There's a lot of great paintings conservators, especially in New York. And if I can help get more art treated and take care of it better. That means a lot. You know, like I really, I really like that part of it. The sort of client education and demystifying conservation for a wider audience and learning how to talk to different allied professionals. Cause I think at the end of the day, we all care about art and everyone cares about it in a slightly different way mm. and for different reasons. And so you just have to understand how to talk about conservation people in a way that they will care about. 
Yeah, I think communication and conservation is key, which I'd love to discuss a little bit more with you about. Sure. Um, but before that, I would love to define for someone who's maybe only thought about conservation in relation to like hands-on treatment work, like what what does collections management mean and what kind of services can you provide as a conservator in relation to that? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of conservators who th- who only think of conservation as being hands-on bench treatment for a lot of things. And this is kind of one of the drums I like to bang. Like there's a there's a lot more we do. And I think a lot of our work as conservators is shaped by where we work and when and the projects that happen to be there. So I just happen to work at a lot of places that had this kind of aspect to the work as the of the conservator, or there were institutions that had this kind of work and conservators were the ones to do it. So collections management is... I think of it as, you know, it can include conservation, but essentially it's it's all the other things that you have to do to take care of cultural heritage objects. So that's monitoring their environment, doing preventive conservation, integrated pest management, advising on shipping, how to ship, how to install, arranging for appraisals, arranging for insurance, thinking through loan agreements and exhibitions. And I'm sure I'm leaving a million things out of the, that list, but it's the sort of holistic care of the object, not just the straight, it's it's on, it's on the easel, it needs to be fixed or preventive conservation, you know, keeping it from getting worse. A lot of collections care, I think, is rooted in documentation and good documentation. And so it's helping people either put in place better ways of doing their documentation, tweaking the systems they have because everyone has a different system for a different reason, maybe helping them find an alternative, things like that. And if someone is interested in providing these services, what are some kinds of institutions, organizations, or collections that they can contact with? Like, how do you build these relationships with these institutions that have these needs? I have always found the best way of getting clients and building a network to be in-person networking. So I'm fortunate that in New York, there's a lot of these kinds of like events and things. So, and reaching out to allied professionals, like the art insurance people, art lawyers, corporate collections, appraisers, kind of just being around really, but there's no shortage of places you can look to for people who might need that kind of thing. So local historic house museums, local historic societies, regionally based foundations. I mean, essentially just look for cultural heritage in your area and Mm -hmm. go start going to events, you know, pay attention to the things they say they need, make friends even with grant writers and development people because they're the ones who enable a lot of that work. And it's not even just about making friends. It's like they need people to do this work and would like to do this work. That's sound advice. Also at SDS, you're responsible for building lasting client relationships. How does one build lasting client relationships within a private practice? One, it's important because that is like the, the seeds of your business, whether they come back to you again because they have future needs or they know someone who does. Word of mouth is a huge source of my business. And so that's why these lasting relationships have been so important. I think one way to develop them is to be a resource. So, you know, I've given talks, I've given presentations, I take sort of ad hoc phone phone calls from people because ultimately you want them to turn to you for information. And so even if they have a question that's not something I can answer or it's, you know, about it, something that's outside my specialty, you can refer them to someone and then they get used to the idea of coming to you for answers to their questions. And the more you talk, the more they understand the other things you could do that might 
help them. You see the other parts of their business or their institution or their collection where they might have holes in their systems that you can help fix. Or you're like, you know, I've, I've noticed the same problem keeps happening. Maybe next time I could go look at it before it's shipped or something like that. That sort of just being a resource, I think has been the thing I've found to be the most valuable. And then also going to not just events, but like professional events, because you'll get things not just out of that content, but it'll help you better understand, like, for instance, why, how appraisers think of conservation and what they need it for. Like, you'll be better able to work with them and understand what they're looking for, which will ultimately make for a more successful collaboration. So the more you can understand about how other people use your services, the better all around. Also, you worked as a studio and technical manager. I'm curious, what are some of the lessons you learned from these roles and are these skills relevant to your practice? Yes. So I was a technical manager at SGS and I'd been a studio manager at a couple of other places before. And again, it wasn't something I was necessarily looking for. It kind of happened because of the the way those jobs were set up and some staff restructuring that they'd done. So yes, there's a lot of the parts about being a studio manager that I still use today. Again, lots of credit to Sally Woodcock and and Harriet and uh, Jean at Russell Levinson because I think they sort of showed me how this works and why it's important. So for me, good management and good studio management had taught me like the importance of good documentation and communication and having systems set up to support and enable the treatment to be proactive rather than reactive. So that way the work comes in and there's a process for dealing with everything instead of every time being like reinventing the wheel, like what's that painting? What's it doing? Where is it in treatment? Where's it going? What's it done like? Which to be clear, that will still happen sometimes. Like there's no perfect, you know, things, things will still come up and there will still be things you have to deal with at the moment, but just like having like a framework that you can hang the rest of your work from. It just means like having a system for creating and organizing the documentation and information to facilitate everything else. And I think being exposed to that so early in my career showed me that like the sooner you can implement those kinds of things, it means it's just like, it becomes a habit that grows with you. So that by the time the business is big enough or expanded enough, or you get complicated projects, you can handle new challenges without having to research and create systems while also doing the work. And that's not to say I'm perfect at it or like an expert because like there's always new ways of doing things. There's always new systems that come up. So it's kind of a constantly evolving process, but just having the the basic system in place helps everything else go more easily, I have found. I'm curious if you could provide a little bit more of a specific example of something that's in place in the systems to help with the workload process. Yes. I have yet to find like a project tracking tool I really like. Like I've tried like Monday and Trello and all the, all those things. And for various reasons, none of them have been my kind of like go-to forever. But I have basic documentation that I do at certain times, things like the artwork receipt, like a template, a client information sheet, blah, blah, blah. And my newest... So this is, I mean, it's like, a, it's a, it's an idea that's been around that I've been doing manually, but now I'm automating a lot of it with Google Forms so that I can try and get a lot of this admin done automatically, things that I used to have to, to do manually, which certainly works, but this has made that a lot easier. 
Excellent. And how can emerging professionals and students build studio management skills? There's a lot of information available online. That doesn't mean it's all good and it can be overwhelming, but it's like a good place to start. I would also say I've benefited dramatically from the fact that my dad retired from the Air Force the year I went to college and he started businesses. He had an MBA and he runs, um, to this day, he runs his own businesses. And so I sort of saw in practice how the like, quote, like official part of business management worked and not just that something that was based in a conservation studio. So I think I absorbed a lot of ideas from him, but taking a project management workshop, I think is a great place to start. Even just taking a couple of business classes, like that's something I haven't officially done that I do kind of wish I had done at the time. But again, there's a lot available of available information online about business development, like writing a business plan, things like that. And so I would start there. You know, like not everything that you'll find online is 100% transferable to conservation, but just training to like your brain to think through things and about things in a certain way has been a great place to start. The Ask a Manager website is, I think, like my favorite website. It's great. And again, like I'm not managing staffs of 50 or anything like that. So not all the details directly respond to problems I'm trying to solve or, you know, like how conservation works in private practice, but the overall idea about how to run a business, how to interact with people, how to think about things has been really helpful and really important. I also think other conservators, like you were saying, how the impetus for your whole podcast started was other conservators are great sources of information. I think most of us are pretty happy to talk to other people and help people get started. We all did it. As part of CIPP, I am trying to like help us get more resources together and out there. Yeah. Ask around, look at the forums. You've probably not been the first person to have this question. Definitely won't be the last. Yeah, that's so true. So you worked at SGS for two years. And then at that time, did you transition fully back into your own private practice? Yeah. So they decided to close the art services department, which coincided with me actually wanting to do like a little more back in private practice stuff because working for a big multinational, there's lots of liability because, you know, there were certain things that I wish I could have done, but we weren't able to. So it was like a nice little transition back into private practice. And really the people and the contact tax I met during those two years at SGS were super beneficial. So it was pretty seamless. And I was glad that I had kept all the business paperwork up because I could just kind of start, start right back up. And did you find a studio space for New York City? Were you working from your home space? So previously, I was like, I'm going to work on site as much as I can, because as no one will be surprised to hear, commercial real estate in New York is very complicated (laughs) and very expensive. And I wanted to see what the balance of collections management versus active bench work was really going to be before I committed Mm -hmm. to a certain size of studio or space, et cetera. And so I started working on site, which was more than fine. I had a, a room in my apartment. I was lucky to have like a room I could use for conservation if I wanted to. And I did a couple of things, but I was either mostly working on site or subletting space from another paintings conservator when I needed it, which was kind of perfect because I didn't need it all the time. So I was able to just have it when I needed it. Uh, And we worked out a price per day that included some materials and then other materials I either just like brought myself because by then I did have 
a material stash. So I would bring things or buy like a certain amount. It worked great. And then, then the pandemic. And so sharing studio space was no longer very realistic. And I got a project that was big enough that I was like, okay, I think I can start to look at studio spaces on my own. And I did. And I was lucky to find one, like a 15 minute walk from my house. And well, I live in Park Slope in the studios in Gowanus. And I was there for two years and then wanted a bigger space with some different amenities. And I was very lucky and found one even closer, just a 10 minute walk from my apartment. And so that's, that's where we are now. And for those two studio spaces, did you have to do any renovations or adjustments to customize them into a conservation space? Well, the first studio space needed just a little extra paint and things like that. And then the second space is new construction. So it's pretty good to go and a nice massive terrace with like a view of Manhattan. So that's great. And like lots of big windows. And I purposefully haven't done any build out of it right now because I wanted to see how I actually use the space before I committed to installing things, which I think has been smart because now everything's flexible. I can move the tables. I can move the easels. I can move the paintings racks. I can, you know, do what I, the only thing I can't really move is the solvent cabinet. It's huge and heavy, but otherwise things are still pretty flexible. And I don't think I'll really have any build out. Like I have a a front, the front space by the terrace, which is kind of the, like, there's a couch and a coffee table and a coffee machine, you know, refrigerator. That's like the sit and chat area. And then a kind of like admin space. And then the act video back or is the, is the other two thirds. So I've been lucky. Yeah. That's awesome. I'd like to turn now to billing. So do you charge hourly or kind of bid by the project and how has your rate changed from from Amsterdam to Virginia to New York? All great questions. So I try and for treatments, I give clients like a project cost because I find that that's actually what they're interested in. They don't need the hourly breakdown. I find that like line iteming things and giving them an hourly breakdown encourages them to kind of like cherry pick, like, well, what about, could we do this, but not that blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, the, the treatment is working the way it is for a reason. And at the end of the day, they're just interested in the project price. And it also means that I'm able to see the project price and be like, is this a price I can live with for this treatment? Um, And so I base that obviously on an hourly rate that's developed from overhead and insurance and health insurance and materials and all of that sort of thing. Um, So I use an hourly breakdown for myself to estimate it, but then just quote them for a project. Sometimes it's a a single price, sometimes it's a range. And then for the collections management and consulting part of it, that is billed by the hour because it's just variable and depends. So I bill in 15 minute increments. Having just looked at that business plan with you for my, what my hourly rate was in Amsterdam in 2011, it is quite different now. Again, that's based on just a whole different set of calculus than it was previously. Even in Virginia, my hourly rate was different because in England and the Netherlands, you have socialized healthcare. You have a lot of other things that are kind of taken over. The cost of living at that time wasn't so big there. Virginia, is obviously cheaper than New York. And even in the States, like my health insurance was different price than it is in New York. And it has varied quite a lot. And now I have an hourly rate. There is also, you can tell some clients or some projects are going to be much more complicated to work on than the client thinks they are, or that there's a set of circumstances like a lot of other people involved that mean the scope of work is going to change and the timeline is going to change and it's going to become 
much more of a drain on time and energy than the basic project itself looks like at the beginning. And so I do account for that in the project as well. I don't charge for admin time early. Like I build that into my hourly rate and emails and phone calls are kind of included. But then there are these projects where you know that you're going to be spending 30 hours doing admin for a 15 hour job. And, you know, it's going to take a couple of days. And so you have to account for that somehow. Exactly. This is a complicated question to ask. I know, again, because you've worked in three different locations. Um, But when do you think your business became profitable? Sure. That is a great question because what is profitable? I, I've always, I've always paid my rent on time and been able to eat every week. And so I think, you know, I'm a single woman working in the arts. That wasn't nothing for a very long time. You know, that was fine. I was able to meet my needs save a little, although not a ton. But I think one thing I have noticed in the last four years is that I'm very, very busy and I'm not getting less busy. Just the volume of work is still increasing fairly dramatically. And for a long time, I couldn't really figure out why that was. But then I realized it's just because I haven't, I've been in one place for more than four years. (laughs) You know, that does affect things. And that's something I, I kind of wish I'd thought about a little bit earlier. But I would say in the last eight years, I've been able to think about things in a different way than just paying my rent every month and, you know, saving some, but not a lot and buying equipment. And now I'm able to think more long-term, think bigger. Speaking of thinking long-term, do you have any plans for retirement? Such a great question. One thing I need to do is get my pension out of the Netherlands. That is step one. I have, I do have a pension in the US or a 401k or whatever. I need to sort out that paperwork. I do not have an official retirement plan. It is something I am working on. It's evolving, but no, I don't have any official plans. I think retirement and conservation is also a very interesting issue in and of its own that I know people are starting to to talk more publicly about now. And I think that's important, especially it seems with conservators, a lot of us have more of our identity tied up in our job than perhaps other professions. And so I think that's that's really interesting. So no, I don't have any specific plans. It's an evolving, like I'm trying to put be more intentional about it. Um, and again, finally, just like deciding to stop moving has really helped that. Awesome. And do you have any plans for like growth or expansion um, for this location? Sure. Uh, yes. One of the reasons I liked this studio in particular is it's big enough to hold workshops and events, which is something I've always been interested in doing. Uh, and I like now will actually be able to do also whether I plan for it or not, I have enough business now that I am hiring freelancers and other people. And so I'm thinking about who I want to hire and why, like if it's better to try and have an admin person or like a photographer or an assistant conservator. So I'm thinking through those plans, but I just moved into the studio in November. I never want to leave. And so it's, it's finding just that balance for here, Mm -hmm. but those are my current, current plans, more client education events, hosting some workshops and figuring out what kind of support staff would best uh, benefit the business. Your current workflow, like what percentage would you say is treatment based Mm -hmm. versus like collections management and consultancy based? Great question. I would say generally, if we're talking like active treatment, like I am at an easel cleaning, removing a varnish versus collections management that includes 
survey and condition reporting. I think I'm probably running at like, let's say 60 to 70%, somewhere in there, collections management and consulting. And that's partly because I've encouraged it. It's partly because there's, that's just what clients have needed. And you are currently working with AIC in the CIPP or Conservators and Private Practice Group. Can you talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing with that group? Sure. I started as the assistant program chair and then the program chair. And then last summer I was elected chair. Private practice can be very lonely in a way that people don't really talk about, or at least it's not the most commonly talked about thing. And I think volunteering with AIC gives me a level of engagement and outreach that is like important, frankly, just for me, like in a very selfish way. And then also it's important for private practice people to stay engaged with the profession and help move it along. Some of it is like, um, these are resources I want to have available to me. And so I'm happy to help try and develop them. It is hard to balance volunteer work with private practice because everything is billable hours, but I think of it in the same way that I do admin and business development, which people never really tell you how much of your time gets taken up with that, but it's important in its own way. And it helps me stay engaged with the business in a different kind of way. And so we're, we're working on things that are really just kind of bringing together these ideas for sharing information, sharing systems, being a support for each other professionally. We're trying to get those set up. It's not always a timeline that I would like it to be, but you know, it takes takes time to get all these things done and we're all volunteers and we all have things going on. So I'm excited. You know, we're, I know we're recording this and you said this will come out probably in August, but I'm getting ready to leave for Jacksonville on Wednesday for this year's AIC conference. And I'm excited to see people there. I must tip my hat to Kari Rayner and her compatriots because those tip sessions have become the most enjoyable and valuable things I have taken away from AIC conferences over the last, I don't know, five or six years. I appreciate the research and the higher level thinking and the theoretical conceptual sorts of part of conservation. But also I just want to know about like a very cool thing you have, like a new tool you found, a problem you ran into that you fixed. Um, You know, we're all doing the same kinds of things in different ways, in different parts of the countries, in different disciplines. I think that kind of, that's engaging and that's useful. I like actionable things. You know, these kinds of things like the Google Forms, which I didn't, I didn't invent that myself. That I got that from Samantha Springer, um, the Google Forms with Document Studio for automating a lot of things. And now, now I'm talking with Rachel Ehrenstein because they use Airtable. And I think Document Studio can be a link from like Google Forms to Airtable. You know, there's all these mm. different ways of doing that. If we actually talk to each other about what we're doing can be very constructive. And I don't think there's any reason not to share that information. So those are the kinds of things for CIPP. And we started this peer-to-peer support network, which is again, just like connecting people like, Hey, I have this weird question, or I have this client. Has anyone ever had to deal with this kind of thing before? What do you think? Just providing more resources for people in private practice and support. Cause I think at the end of the day, that's one of the things that makes the most difference. Yeah, absolutely. You talked a little bit about how lonely it was to be in the private practice sometimes. I'm curious, are there any other like hard issues or challenges that Mm -hmm. were unexpected that you faced working in the private sector? Conservation's visibility as being something more than just bench treatment in museums. I think those projects are amazing. I'm so glad my colleagues are doing them. I'm glad they're getting attention and bringing people into conservation generally. But I think once we have that engagement and interaction, like using it to talk about the other things that conservators do, like the routine survey, it's not the sexiest thing, but it's a really important part of our job. And so if we're only ever raising money 
and publicizing the big projects that look cool, I think it might be a small failure on our part not to translate that into further visibility and reaching out with other allied professionals. Like I said, like the insurance people and art lawyers and appraisers, all those people are out there. You know, the earlier you can involve conservation in a discussion, I think the better, because one of the things that people always say about conservation is like, oh, it costs so much or it takes so long. And both of those things can be true. But I think one of the reasons people feel that way is because they tend to talk to conservators last or towards the end of a process instead of sort of at the beginning. So we're always trying to like retrofit and shove conservation into an existing project or an existing budget where if they just talked to us earlier, we could have done some preventive things or had the crate built a different way or talked about shipping a different way that would have been faster and easier then, but because we're doing it later now seems like a holdup instead of a help. I'm trying to think of like solutions to that problem. So as it's kind of like proactively networking and meeting with these people in these allied fields and introducing yourself and try to like organically insert yourself into these conversations, how can conservators take actions to be more visible and to be part of these conversations? That's a great question. I think it is all of those things you just (laughs) talked about, like, you know, looking around your community and seeing how the arts work there. And you know what? Continuing credit to that Dutch American Friendship Treaty business plan, because it made me look at the different market segments and who they were and how, like where they were and what they needed from me, like how I could help. And always thinking in terms of like, how can I help you? Like, how can I help you solve this problem? Um, My boss, Jan at SGS, he was always pushing me to do business development. I was like, Jan, I'm not sales. I'm I'm not like that. I don't want to have like quotas and things like that. He's like, that's fine. He was like, but he was like, you say you don't want to do business development. He's like, that's fine. So what part of your job, like, what do you like doing? I was like, I really like talking to different people and hearing about the kinds of art that they have and why they have it and what they need doing with it and helping them take care of it and like helping them find the best way to do that. It was like, Lauren, that's business development. I was like, fine, you're right. Uh, And so I think just like framing it, like I think when I was training, there's this idea that you were coming from an altruistic place, which is still true. We all, you know, there is a part of that, but it is also a business and enable to do those other things. You need to run the business effectively. And business development isn't a bad, dirty thing. It's like helping people who need us get to us so we can help them in their art. And some of it is just like going to events, meeting people, talking to people, paying attention to what they're saying. And again, like not cringing away from the fact that for some people art is an asset and they will talk about it in monetary terms. That's how it is for them. They still need that painting to be taken care of. And so just listening and getting out there and seeing who needs you. Exactly. And you briefly mentioned something that I think is really interesting. And it's like negotiating with clients who have a very different sense and perspective about their artwork than it is in a more monetary sense and trying to communicate or advocate for the conservation of that work. So do you have any strategies for negotiation or advice for people who are having difficulty in that regard? I think of it in the end, we have the same goal. We want this painting to last. They might want that painting to last to protect their investment. 
or they might also, they might appreciate it as a work of art and still want to protect their investment. And that's Mm. fine. Many people have spent quite a lot of money on these things. And so it's reframing it. I mostly try and show them the cost of like, well, okay, if we, if you don't want to glaze it, like that's fine. If you don't want to frame it, that's fine. I understand. Here are some alternatives. We can hang it this way so that it's not elbow height around a corner, working with them so that we're not saying no, we're just helping to find a compromise and then showing them what the potential cost for treatment could be. Because if, if that's one of their quote pain points is like the price of things, then show them that I could spend half a day doing preventive work or a whole day doing preventive work. And then like, if, if these other knock-on things happen, I won't need to clean it. It won't have a stain on it. It won't have it, which those are harder, trickier, and more expensive to fix. So just showing them concrete examples of what the knock-on effects are. And then also realizing that it is their decision. Like if that's what they want to do, that's fine. I think definitely in the last few years, I'm starting to realize the importance of communication for conservators in a way I didn't appreciate before. I think it's a really vital part of being in the business. Yes. And I think that's something that the training programs, at least when I was training, like they weren't necessarily set up that way because they sort of took for granted that you would be talking with people who had an innate understanding and appreciation importance of conservation, like in a museum or a cultural heritage institution. But it doesn't take very long to realize that even within museums and cultural heritage institutions, they only think of us as like fixing broken things, not necessarily helping to stop things from getting damaged, which is better for a variety of reasons in my humble opinion. And accidents will still always happen. We will always need conservators. It's not like bench treatment's going to go away. So you're currently working as a contract conservator at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Can you generally discuss the unique challenges of preserving and caring for the memorial paintings in that collection? Sure. It's really interesting because I think, you know, for, for most of us, if not all of us, like 9-11 is something we had direct experience with or direct memories of, but in 50 years, that won't necessarily be the case. So in some ways, it's just engaging with the same kinds of paintings that older memorial paintings were, but we don't have that personal association with anymore. You know, there's a lot more consideration of the family and the artists. I think one thing they do that's really amazing that frankly, I wish more museums did was they always try and include an artist interview with acquisition of the object, with accessioning it into the collection. And for them, I think the point is more, it is documenting that memorialization and that personal experience. But it's also a great chance to talk about materials. And, you know, if you have questions, why? And there there is this existing connection with the artist, which is certainly not true of every collecting body. There's that kind of more direct personal connection with the artist. And then it is interesting. Some of the works are obviously very, very moving and very touching, and they can be like very sad. It's obviously easier to put that aside when it's an abstract work instead of a figurative work. It's, It's a really special thing to be able to be part of helping these memories persist in a direct way that it, it that's concrete and visible and not abstracted from an older work. We're going to transition to advice. So what can pre-program and graduate students do now to prepare for starting and running their own practice? Sure. I would say take a business class or two. I think that's good life 
maybe, but definitely if you're interested, I think it's even good for people who want to work in institutions because there's still budgets and all sorts of things that, you know, it would be good to have a business class for. I think reaching out to other people in private practice, we're all fairly nice and fairly open to sharing. And if we aren't in your area or in your specialty, we can refer you to, you know, pass you on to someone who is. And then I think maybe my biggest piece of advice is to pay attention to the kinds of things you really like doing within conservation and finding a way to highlight and make that a part of your business because you will ultimately be doing that thing a lot. And so it is good if it's something you enjoy, it'll keep you excited and engaged and wanting to learn more. Amazing. My last question is, is there anything that I missed that you want to include in the interview that we didn't touch on? I think one of the problems for conservation is that as much as what we do is the same, the place where we do them is very different. And so like the, the ways I find, the ways I connect with clients in New York is potentially dramatically different the way that someone in Santa Fe connects with clients. And so it is just looking around with a critical eye as to like, who are your client, potential client groups? Where are they meeting? How do you meet them? What do they need from you? Like if there's more survey and inventory work, think about that versus like big, huge projects. We didn't really talk about government contracts because I have found the RFP process to be onerous for a studio size of previously like one, but, you know, looking for those city, state, and federal projects is a whole other can of worms. There's work there and there are databases of projects, but it depends on your state. And so you have to find the one for your state. So I don't think there's any one size fits all for how to connect with clients because it depends on where you are and also what you're specifically interested in and what your experience is. But I, one thing that I think doesn't get maybe talked about enough is that it can be hard to you know, spend time and money on professional development and engagement when you're balancing a budget and feeling overwhelmed with work. And you, you know, like, do I have to go to this conference? Do I have to go to this art fair opening? Like all these things. And that's not to say they're universally useful, but after some trial and error have found the ones that are useful to go to for me and going to them has always been useful ever since I started going. And so whether it's just making a contact or familiarizing yourself with the place, so you become a face and a name that people are used to seeing, all of that builds. And it's hard to make yourself do those things sometimes when there's like paintings sitting that need to get done, reports that need to be done. Like it's really important. And, you know, those kinds of activities, including professional development, like taking the time to sit in on a workshop on project management, they will ultimately serve you just as well as getting that painting done. And, you know, talking again about how private practice can feel at times very lonely and isolating, like that level of engagement usually I find helps kind of refocus me or reinvigorate me a little bit, you know, like it's a good, not just me sitting at the easel all the time. I mean, some of the highlights are like, I think I just was very fortunate to be certain places at certain times and to have had the mentors that I did. I think that's been, was the most helpful. Working in private practice never seemed scarier necessarily than working in an institution. Um, I still like institutional work and certainly the stability that it offers is nice, but it's worth exploring private practice. You get to do some really amazing things with some really amazing clients. Very true. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. I really appreciate it. I've been great. Well, no, thank you. This has been a real, a real delight.
Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support.